Now, beloved, those who pride themselves upon their firm stand for certain truths of Scripture should take note that where spiritual power in testimony is concerned, it is not merely where one stands, but where he is going that matters. Have you ever asked yourself how Martin Luther, who was really confused about the second coming of Christ, who still had so much to learn about law and grace, who even faltered in his belief in the finished work of Christ, who took with him so many of the rags of Rome, have you ever asked yourself how this man came to be so mightily used of God that he shook all of Europe with the truths he did understand so that much of Europe and America still feels the result of his powerful ministry? Have you ever asked yourself how John Calvin, who still lived so largely under the Old Testament and the law, that he actually taught capital punishment for extreme cases of heresy, and how John Wesley, who never really understood justification fully, and both so confused about the return of Christ, could yet be used so mightily in their influence uh, so that it's still felt on every hand? Have you ever asked yourself how John Darby, who thought that Matthew 18.20 refers to gatherings of members of the body of Christ, and that our Lord's commands to the eleven are still our commission for today, and who had the disciples looking for the rapture and the return of Christ to earth at the same time, how he could have been so mightily used of God that millions of sincere believers are still thanking God for John Darby. The answer is that these men all had the sincere and single passion, evidently, to know the truth of God so as to obey it and make it known to others. They did not, like so many today, close their eyes to truths which might prove unpopular, or having found light on the word, hide it for fear or favor of men. Rather, they searched diligently for further light on the word, and having found it, they stood courageously for it regardless of the cost. This is why they enjoyed such extraordinary spiritual power in their proclamation of the truths they did understand. This is always the secret of power in our ministry for Christ, beloved. Do we truly long for light on the word of God? so that we may obey him more completely? And are we faithful in imparting this light to others when he does give it to us? In this sphere, it's not so much where we stand as where we're going that counts. None of us has ever uh, even begun to master the scriptures. This is the word of God, and it is infinite in its scope. So we all have much, very much to learn. But the measure of our spiritual power and influence in ministering the word to others is determined entirely by our, by our obedience or disobedience to one of the most important injunctions of Scripture, the injunction to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Peter says to us in Second Peter 3. The Apostle Paul, you'll remember, rebuked the Corinthian believers for many serious failures. But have you ever noticed that at the root of their trouble lay the fact 
that having had the benefit of his own extended ministry and that of other great men of God like Apollos, they had failed to respond and to grow and were still babes, unable to digest the solid food of the Word of God. And so Paul had to write to them, as he did in 1 Corinthians 3, the first two verses. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual people, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, and not with meat, that is, solid food. For hitherto you were not able to digest it, neither yet now are ye able. The evidences of this condition that could digest only the simplest things of Scripture were seen in the conduct of the Corinthian believers. For to prove that they were still babes in Christ, the apostle continues in verse 3, Whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, not over the truth of the word of God, but over personalities and over uh, uh, mundane things. Are ye not yet carnal and walk as men? Similarly, the Hebrew believers to whom Paul wrote were unable to digest precious truths because of their lack of appetite for spiritual food and their consequent failure to grow. So the apostle had to write to them as he did in Hebrews 5, verses 11 to 14. He's speaking there of Christ and says, We have many things to say and hard to be uttered because you are dull of hearing. For when for the time, that is for the time you've been saved, you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again. What are the first principles of the oracles of God? and have become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. Again, that's solid food. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, even to those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You can see here how he... Uh, likens the spiritual to the physical. The baby can use only milk. It has to grow up and finally grow to manhood before it can really uh, digest solid food and digest it well. So it was with the truth of God and the Corinthians. They were babies. There was so much that Paul had to say and with these Hebrews as well. So much that he had to say and to tell them about Christ. But they couldn't digest it. They were truths that were over their heads. They had still to use spiritual meek, the simple things of God. Likewise, the Galatian believers had stopped growing after Paul's departure from them. Indeed, had even begun to go back under the law, and Paul had to write them, Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? That's Galatians 4.15. All these had failed to make progress in the things of God, thus losing the spiritual blessing and power which should attend the testimony of every believer. Indeed, each of these cases illustrates the fact that by standing still in the things of God, we actually go backward. 
The Corinthians, in their defection, came to challenge even the apostleship of Paul, who had at such cost led them into the light of God's grace. The Galatian believers lost the blessedness they had once enjoyed, and the Hebrew believers, now calloused, dull of hearing, had become such as needed milk because they couldn't digest the solid food of Scripture. This is why the apostle emphasizes so strongly the importance of growth and progress, both in the life of the individual believer and in that of the body of Christ, the church as a whole. In the Ephesian epistle, he points out that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, that is, the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Mark well its children who are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, and that our aim should rather be the building up of the body of Christ until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a full-grown man. The reception and propagation of the truth is therefore deeply involved in the growth of the individual believer and of the church as a whole. Peter joins Paul in this, exhorting believers, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. Notice very carefully, don't tell everybody just to go for milk. That's what uh, should not be the case. But he says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk, that ye may grow thereby and explaining the continued absence of Christ from this earth, his delay in returning to judge and reign, he, acknowledge, he acknowledges, I should say, our beloved brother Paul, as he calls him, as the God-appointed apostle of grace, and closes with this wonderful exhortation, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and ever. Amen. You who make so much of Peter, the great denomination that makes so much of Peter should heed this. It is Peter's very last words that I've read to you. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How many nominal Christians there are that don't even really know Christ yet. They don't know him. They think he's making a perpetual sacrifice, dying every day for sin. When God tells us that once by one offering he hath perfected forever those who are sanctified, and that by one offering, once, 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 is the word in Hebrews 9, and ten, 
Oh, thank God for this. But we must go on in grace from here. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This explains why Luther and Calvin, Wesley and Darby had so great a measure of spiritual power in their ministries and why they accomplished so much for God. They did not stifle growth by closing their eyes to truths which might prove unpopular. They eagerly accepted what light God imparted to them and then faithfully proclaimed it to others. It explains, too, why men of God today who have inherited far more light on the word than Luther ever had may yet be so utterly lacking in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a day when those who minister the word should pay special heed to these facts. Those who know more about the truth than others before them but reject further light and stifle further growth will find their power fading fast. This has happened to us in this last century. Here came uh, Darby and uh, Schofield and others showing to us the great truths, the differences between law and grace and the truth of the body and the truth of uh, our oneness in him and all of that. Ah, but they didn't go on from there. That is, the people who heard them, the church, the uh, those who benefited by the teachings of these men did not go on from there. And when the truth of the one body and the one baptism came, ah, they stopped short and would not receive it. Partly, no doubt, because it was new. But even that they could examine uh, whether it was scripture or not. It was largely because they knew that these truths would be unpopular. There may be Presbyterian or Baptist ministers, for example, who have not seen the glory of the all-sufficiency of the one baptism by which believers are made one in Christ, yet may enjoy real spiritual power in proclaiming the truths they do understand. Ah, but these are diminishing because the truth of the one body and its one baptism have now so long been proclaimed. Let these same men close their eyes to the Pauline message when faced with it, having seen it, let them remain silent about it for any reason whatever and the power of their ministry will vanish. And this is why there are so few great men of God with true spiritual power these days. Much organization, much uh, uh, many gimmicks and ways of doing things, great and many methods. Ah, but so little of the power of God in explaining the scriptures. This is the situation which is so prevalent on every hand today. And the reason why the church, though larger than ever in numbers, is spiritually weak and ill, uh, comes from this same reason. Men of God who know far more about the word, that is, in its details, than Luther, Calvin, Wesley, or Darby, are utterly destitute of spiritual power in their proclamation of the word because they are rejecting further light or are maintaining a discreet silence as to it, and the church at large is feeling the results. It's not so much where one stands then as where one is going that counts. Let us therefore ask God to keep us going ever forward in our knowledge of the word and in our proclamation of it, that our ministry may be attended in increasing degree 
with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this has its application to unbelievers as well, to those who are not yet saved. There are many infallible proofs that the Bible is the Word of God, God's written revelation to mankind. One of these proofs is the element of prophecy. Only God knows what shall be, and his prophetic clock has always been right on time. The present futile attempts of world leaders to establish lasting peace is but another confirmation of the many Bible predictions that this age of Christ's rejection would be marked by wars and rumors of wars, and that lasting peace will not be established until the Prince of Peace returns to earth to take the throne. But if we could advance proof after proof to back the unbeliever into a corner, if we could tie him up in knots with our arguments until he cries, I give up, you're right and I'm, uh, I'm right and you're, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, you are right and I am wrong, would this save his soul or gain him acceptance before God? Indeed not, for God wants to be believed. And salvation is the gift of God to be received by faith. So the Bible declares in Hebrews 11:6 that without faith it is impossible to please him. There's nothing in all the world that will haunt a man like the fear that God may be displeased with him. And there's no joy comparable to the assurance that God is pleased. It's foolish, though, to suppose that we can please God with what we think he desires. We must give him what he says he desires, and he tells us again and again in his word that it is faith he desires from us most of all. He wants us to trust him, to take him at his word. The Bible tells us at length how God loved us and came to this world as God the Son to die on Calvary's cross for our sins. But alas, instead of taking him at his word, thousands turn away from his gracious offer going about to establish their own righteousness, as Paul puts it in Romans 10, the first few verses. They do good works and make great sacrifices, thinking that surely a God of love will accept their sacrifices and overlook their failures. But this is pure presumption, not faith. Let's beware of confusing the two. Uh, Pharaoh presumed that he could take his armies through the Red Sea, as Moses had done, but he led them all to destruction for presuming upon God. Cain presumed that God would surely accept his attractive sacrifice instead of the prescribed one, but God rejected both him and his sacrifice. Naaman the leper refused God's way of cleansing, saying, I thought, but he wasn't cleansed until he learned to take God at his word. Oh, my unsaved friend, take God at his word. He says it is not of works, lest any man should boast. He says about salvation, it is not of yourself. It can be nothing in your character or your deeds that can contribute one iota to your conversion. You must take the place of a sinner and acknowledge that Christ died for your sins. And then you can uh, hear God's word given by Paul to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. A casual reading of the Bible might lead some to suppose that it should have been easier for Israel in Old Testament times to live pleasing to God than it is for Christians today. 
They, Israel, had the advantage of being all together as the people of God. They had Moses as their God-appointed counselor and guide. They were led by God himself in the glorious Shekinah cloud. They had seen the Red Sea miraculously divide before them and had passed through on dry land. God had fed them with manna from heaven and water from the smitten rock. They had heard the voice of God himself as he spake all these words of the Ten Commandments. We find this in Exodus 20, verse 1. They had seen Mount Sinai all on a smoke, it says, and had witnessed the thunder and lightning and had felt the earthquake. We have no such advantages today. We have nothing for sight. We must walk entirely by faith. Instead of being all together as one great company of God's people, we are scattered all over the faith of the earth, and many Christians find themselves very much alone in the communities where they live. We have no miraculous demonstrations, no visible divine presence to lead us, no voice from heaven. But we do have the abiding assurance of full and perfect justification in the sight of God. We have been pronounced righteous because Christ has died for our sins and we have accepted that offering as the payment for our sins. We have God's own word that we are now accepted in the Beloved One and blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We know that We, individually, are the members of the body of Christ, the church of today, and that God dwells in us through his Spirit, as we read in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. What an incentive to glorify God in all that we do and say. After all, divided seas, manna from heaven, thunder, lightning, and earthquake, Even the great Shekinah cloud and the commanding voice of God from heaven could not in themselves impart the power to overcome sin and temptation. Neither, for that matter, can even the assurance of our acceptance with God and the knowledge of our riches uh, and spiritual wealth in the heavenlies and the recognition that we are indwelt by God through his Holy Spirit None of this in itself imparts that power. Many believers know all this and yet live lives of constant spiritual defeat. Only God himself can impart the power to overcome sin and even in this present evil age, God does impart it to those who will receive it by faith. First he tells us, that we have help from God as our Father. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There hath no temptation or testing taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape or as the original has it literally, to rise up out of it, that ye may be able to bear it. Thus, after recalling the sad example of Israel's unbelief and failure, 
the apostle reminds us that God as our Father oversees and overrules in all the circumstances that affect us. We cannot complain that our temptations are more severe than those with which others have been tried, for we are assured by God himself, who knows, that no temptation overtakes us, but such as is, and I'm quoting, common to man. Furthermore, God is attentive to each particular case, and he is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted above our God-given ability to bear it, but will with the temptation also provide a way to rise up out of it to glorious victory. What blessed assurance is already given us here that we need not fail or fall, since God our Father watches over all our circumstances and will not permit temptation too heavy for us to bear, and will himself provide a way for us to come out on top, as we might put it. Second, we have help from the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Hebrews 2.18 says, In that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor or to encourage those who are tempted. And he goes on in the fourth chapter, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A contrast is drawn here between the Old Testament priests and our blessed Lord. Israel did again and again have priests to represent them who were not touched with the feelings of the people's infirmities. Take the case of the high priest Eli, for example. Seeing Hannah in the tabernacle engaged in earnest prayer, he supposed she was drunken. As he began to rebuke her, he was embarrassed to find a woman in deep distress, crying to the Lord for help. But rather than giving her his understanding, sympathy, and encouragement, he had rebuked her. He had said, we don't want people in here who are drunken, not knowing that she was far from intoxicated. She was praying earnestly to God. But why had Eli presumed that she was intoxicated? The answer is simple. Because his own sons, also priests, had defiled the tabernacle and were, had encouraged irreverence and gross immorality among the people. Eli, of course, is only one example of many of Israel's priests who had little feeling for the people and were interested only in their own welfare. Indeed, Israel's high priests finally became so wealthy and politically powerful that they couldn't be touched with the people's spiritual infirmities and needs. But we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, says Hebrews 2. 
His loving heart is deeply touched. He cannot sympathize with our sins, of course, for he never sinned. But he can and does sympathize with our infirmities, for these he knew. He himself had suffered being tempted. Forty days the devil, Satan, kept at him with his wicked temptations and never left him alone until finally the temptation was called to a halt by God. Indeed, our Lord was in all points tested like as we are, yet without sin. This is why he could so abundantly feel for those who were tempted and encourage them so that they, like he, might overcome the temptation. And more, this is why he can so ably represent us at the Father's right hand. He sympathizes with our infirmities. He has been through temptation, dire temptation himself. He knows. That's why we read in Hebrews 7.25 that he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. How wonderful, this being saved to the uttermost. How blessed that we can come to God by him who went through these temptations himself. How blessed that we can come to God by him who went through them victoriously. Let us therefore, he says, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're well aware of the, object of the objections of those who argue that the book of Hebrews was not written by Paul, that it doesn't directly concern the members of the body of Christ, that Christ is not our high priest, since we ourselves are seated in Christ at God's right hand as Paul's letters teach. Ah, perhaps such have forgotten that this book was written at the close of the period covered by the book of Acts as an, as an appeal to the Hebrew believers to go forth unto Christ without the camp, bearing his reproach, Hebrews 13. Perhaps they've forgotten that it was addressed to partakers of the heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1. Perhaps they've forgotten that this epistle after explaining that Christ had by himself purged our sins, uh, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, urges its readers to enter into his rest, that is, to rest as he has rested in his finished work. That's Hebrews 4.19. It's true indeed that positionally we are already seated in the heavenlies in Christ, and that the blessings of this position may be daily appropriated by faith. But the fact remains that physically we are still on earth while Christ is in heaven. It is true, too, that our spiritual warfare is against principalities and powers in the heavenlies. But it is nevertheless our circumstances down here that bring about that warfare. When finally we are caught up to be with Christ, that warfare will forever be ended. Those who object that we have no need of a high priest because we ourselves are already seated in the heavenlies surely forget that this is but, this is but positional truth. They forget 
that in the later epistles of Paul, he also recognizes fully the actual circumstances of our experience here on earth. In these epistles, he himself declares his desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. That's Philippians 1.23. And he explains how the church should be subject to Christ as the wife to the husband, Ephesians 5.24. How the Lord cleanses his church, Ephesians 5.26. How he will someday present her without spot or wrinkle, Ephesians 5.27. Why would this be necessary if we're already in heaven in every uh, sense? Ah, no, we're just there uh, positionally. This is the position we have in Christ. Surely those who uh, can think only of our position in Christ forget that in these same later epistles we are offered the peace of God through Christ. Philippians 4, 7. We're reminded that we are the servants of Christ. Ephesians 6, 6. Someday in the future to be caught up to be with Christ. Well, naturally, in writing to Hebrews, the apostle uses the figure of the high priest in describing our Lord's intercession for his own. But we must not forget that Paul wrote to the Gentile Corinthians that Israel's experiences were examples to them, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and that he wrote to the Gentile Romans that Christ at the right hand of God, made intercession for them, as we read in Romans 8.34. Oh, let's thank God then that we do have one representing us before the Father who is infinitely more sympathetic and infinitely more powerful than any high priest Israel ever had that he is always ready to help us in time of need, and that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Think of it. Nor let us fail to take full advantage of the gracious offer to come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace in every time of testing, knowing that he will be there to receive us, and that his word and love and power assure us that we shall obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But not only does the believer in Christ find help against temptation from the Father and from the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he also finds help from the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you what Paul says about this in Romans 8, 11, and 12. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or give life to your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Here we have the spirit's help in time of temptation. It should be carefully noticed that the apostle here does not speak of the future resurrection of our dead bodies. Oh, no. He speaks of the present quickening of our mortal bodies, the empowering of our mortal bodies to do God's will. In Romans 8, 2, we read that the law of the Spirit, that of life in Christ, 
has made us free from the law of sin and death. While it is a law, an inexorable, unchangeable law, that sin always results in death, in the believer's case, Christ died our death. And being identified with him in his death, we have come forth with him to resurrection life. Nor is this merely a theory. It is made real to us through the Spirit, who by his power raised Christ from the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, says 1 Corinthians 15:22. Since the law of the Spirit is life in Christ, that is, since all who are in Christ have life. Hence the apostle argues that if the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, that same Spirit will surely quicken or give life to our mortal bodies to enable us to walk in newness of life. Therefore, he says, we are debtors and not to the flesh, but to God. No believer can rightly say, I couldn't help it when overtaken by sin. None of us are forced to yield to temptation. Indeed, we owe it to God to stand for his glory. We are debtors For not only does he command us not to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but he gives us the power to withstand temptation by his Spirit who dwells in us, so that we may yield ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. Romans 6.13 And so, with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Holy Spirit uniting to help us, let us believing Christian friends consecrate our lives anew to God, assured of all the help we will need to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age until he come. Just one word. I know that we have many thousands, surely, of unsaved listeners to these broadcasts, those who do not know Christ in a personal way. And I know that you've tried to overcome sin, too. You've been scared sometimes, frightened, haven't you, by the thought of what God may uh, force you to pay sometime for those sins that you've committed. You're afraid of having to stand before him someday. Ah, I hope this has made you jealous. I hope that you will want to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you do, two things will happen. One is a judicial thing. God will pronounce you righteous before his bar of justice. He will say, Christ died for your sins, and since you have accepted that sacrifice as the payment for your sins, I pronounce you righteous. And Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But something else will happen. The Holy Spirit will enter your heart and will make of you a new person. Oh, not that the old person will no longer be there, but he will change your whole direction in life. You will be what our Lord called and what Paul calls regenerated, born again 
you'll start a whole new life. And you will find, as I've said and pointed out from the Scripture, that we believers find that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will all join to help you live the kind of life you should.